and um, I am a professor here at Pepperdine. I teach New Testament. This is a three-day class on men and women sharing church leadership, a scriptural path. This is the second day of that three-day class. So in case people who are here that uh, weren't here yesterday, I wanted to see a little picture of what I'm doing for those folks. Uh, so I said yesterday that scripture is not a traffic light. Sometimes we think of scripture as a traffic light. It's leading through to change of color. That's what you do. Um, but it's something far more complex and beautiful than that. It's a story. Um, someone told me yesterday afterward that when they hear the word story, they think fiction. I didn't realize that. So um, I'm not using it that way. I'm using it in the term of, in the terms of narrative. Um, so it's, it's a big story. And we make decisions about how we enter that story, where we start, what turns we take, where we speed up, where we slow down. And uh, what I'm trying to do in this class is take a step back um, in looking at this question of men and women sharing leadership in the church and look at it from a big picture first and then zoom in. And I said yesterday, this is my perspective. I don't necessarily imagine that everyone would agree with my perspective. So I'm sharing it because I find it so helpful to myself and useful and exciting. But I'm open to conversation. So that's where we are. What we did yesterday, I'm um, using a metaphor. So if you're, if you're new with us, the metaphor is to think of scripture as a landscape, the story of scripture as a landscape that we're walking through. And uh, I wanted to start yesterday with the forest, so the big picture. So this is what we did yesterday. We looked at the forest of scripture. And we saw that women are created as fully human in the image of God, that God values and trusts women, that Christ redeems women as fully human, um, and that gifts are given to women through the Spirit, and these gifts include leadership gifts. And that's where we left off yesterday, really, was looking at these leadership gifts. Um, now, when we, look at, we looked at four passages in the letters, in the New Testament letters, that talk about the Spirit giving gifts to Christians, including leadership gifts. And there is nothing in those passages that is gendered language. There is, it's very gender neutral. It's, um, it's almost intentionally not gendered, as close as you can get in the Greek language, which is very hard. And it's always seemed to me that if there were a theological principle of male leadership operating in scripture, that these passages would be the natural places for that to show up. One could even argue essential places, because that's what we're talking about, the giftedness by the Spirit. That would be an essential place to clarify that leadership gifts in the service of the church are divided by classes of human beings, male and female. But they don't. And the reason that I think that they don't is because of the force that we looked at yesterday. Humans are not created as classes of people. We are created as human beings. And God does not see us as classes of people. So these passages on these leadership gifts are completely in keeping with the forest of scripture that men and women together comprise the image of God and are viewed by God primarily as human beings. And if this were true, then we would expect to find in the pages of scripture women who lead God's people using these kind of gifts. 
And today, that's what we're going to look at. I'm calling this the trees. Um, because, in fact, if we look closely at Scripture, we see that those women are dead. Now, I want to stop, take a step back and talk about myself for a minute. When I was a young woman and I began to hear the call of God in my life to work ministry in the church, answering this call did not come easily. Part of the struggle for me was exegetical. I had been taught a different path through scripture than the one that we are taking in this class today. And from that path, I knew about passages that seemed to argue against the call of God in my life and the gifts that the Spirit had given me. I knew about those passages. But I didn't know about the passages we looked at yesterday, like Acts 2 or Galatians 3.28 or the four gifts passages that actually encouraged me to hear that call. So part of my struggle was exegetical, I had to do the Bible. Part of my struggle was social. It's really uncomfortable to step out of culturally assigned words. It's hard. And it's much easier to do that. It's much easier to swim upstream, so to speak, when you have role models. When I was younger, in my 20s and even into my 30s, I had very few real-life female role models in this regard. I did not know female ministers or female theologians. And even when I did start to get to know those folks, they weren't part of my church tradition. I hadn't heard a woman pray aloud or teach the Bible at a church or even in an academic setting until well into my 20s, late 20s. Now thankfully, in my opinion, this is my view, <laughs> this has changed over time. But during those formative years, I began to be introduced to some other women, women who are no longer alive, but who are very alive on the pages of Scripture. Women who, although I'd come to church my whole life, I hadn't heard of when I was younger. And women who, when I found them on the pages of the Bible, became really important role models for me. These are the faithful, spirit-filled, bold, and courageous women of Israel and earliest Christianity. And when I discovered them, I found myself, as it says in Hebrews, to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. For various reasons, translation, interpretation, and neglect, their stories have been lost to many Christians. But fortunately, there has been a lot of work done by a lot of students of Scripture to bring them back into our cloud of witnesses. And I have found them to be a great source of encouragement. So that's what I want. That's our topic today, are these women. And I'm calling them the trees. <laughs> um, because in scripture we see these trees, these women living, worshiping, and servant leading for the good of God's people. And they are flourishing in forests, in their native habitat. Flourishing in the forest of scripture because they are fully human and gifted by God's words. Okay, so let's look at some of these things. All right, so I want to start with the Old Testament. We're going to spend most of our time on the, in the New Testament today, but I want to do start. I do want to start with the Old Testament. Uh, you probably have heard of Deborah. So Deborah is someone who serves God as a prophet, judge, and mother in Israel, leading her people effectively during a time of crisis. She's called a prophet, a prophet, a judge. Um, she takes a leadership role in what becomes ultimately a battle. There's nothing in the story that suggests that Deborah should not be doing this because she is a woman. Hold up. 
How many of you have heard of Hulda? A few, but not everyone. So let's talk a little bit about Hulda. Hulda is a female prophet. Now, you may know the story told in 2 Kings that when they, uh, the temple has kind of fallen into disrepair uh, because there's been a lot of idolatry going on, and um, it's the time of King Josiah, and they're sort of remodeling the temple, they're sort of revamping the temple and getting serious about temple worship again. And uh, they find this old lost role in the temple, the construction workers do, and they realize it has, it's saying a lot about God and Israel, and they want to understand it. And so they send a group of people to find a prophet to help them understand the lost role. And the prophet they go to is named Hobah. So the priest, Hilkiah, Ahikam, Ahor, Azahiah, went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Arhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She resided in Jerusalem in the second quarter where they consulted her. Now this is quite an entourage of people that go to Huldah. And um, in some of my reading, I, I realized that this entourage consists of the high priest, the father of the future governor, the son of the state prophet, the secretary of state, and the king's officer. Why does the king commission such an impressive group to seek out Huldah? Well, I think because she was probably an impressive prophet. And why does he go to Huldah when Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk are all available? The most reasonable answer is that Huldah is a significant prophet of God. And what she does is she reads the scroll and interprets it and tells Josiah that, these, that this needs to be put into place and how that should be done. Um, and Josiah takes her interpretation seriously and bases wide-ranging reforms upon it. Huldah, a woman an Azer, right, a woman of strength, using the gifts that God has given her in ancient <coughs> In Proverbs 31, there is a long description of women using their gifts of leadership inside and outside the home. And it's kind of a sort of description of, of a very positive description of women's abilities. Uh, and the, the, it's translation, good translation of this is a woman of valor who can find, for her price is far above rubies, eshet chayel, that's what it is in Hebrew. Um, so people like Deborah and Huldah and these others that we're looking at in, in, the, in the Old Testament would be considered an eshet chayel, a woman of valor. In the tabernacle, we often don't think of women serving in the tabernacle, but there is evidence that women served in the tabernacle. So, for example, here in Exodus, he made the basin of bronze with its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, we don't know much about what they did, but there's evidence here. And then there's a passage in 1 Samuel that, for sake of time, I'm not going to go to, but it basically says the same thing. And then I'll just mention, too, that there are a number of sages and prophets in Israel that we, we, we don't necessarily know much about. Sometimes we don't even know their names. Um, but we see them also, women using their leadership gifts in service of God's people. So there's a wise woman of Tekoa, a wise woman of Abel, of Beit Ma'akah, an unnamed female prophet in Isaiah, 
And a female prophet we don't know much about named Noadiah in Nehemiah. So I had not heard of these women when I was growing up. Um, I, I don't remember hearing a sermon on Hulda. Um, I, don't, I don't remember hearing her name. And yet these are examples of women that are living out what we saw in Genesis. Their full humanity before God. Um, and they are not censured by God, they are not criticized, um, and we'll see that, that women in the New Testament are doing similar things. So, let's go out to the New Testament. And I should mention to you that I'm going to talk straight through today, but I'm going to leave time for questions and discussion. I must say that. <coughs> Alright, so let's go out to um, the New Testament, and let's start with the Gospel. So in the Gospels, in Jesus' ministry, we see women using their leadership gifts. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but I want to go into it a little bit more. Um, Mary, I don't know if we think about Mary this way. Usually we think about Mary as someone who is, you know, a willing servant to God who becomes the mother of Christ. Um, and of course she is. But we also have, at the beginning of Luke, a long hymn by Mary. You probably are familiar with this. In which she, you know, she has created a hymn of praise. To God, in which she has put together all kinds of allusions to the Hebrew Bible, to the Old Testament. She's interpreting scripture. Uh, she's, she is what today we might call a, a biblical scholar, <laughs> in, in one sense, right? Um, she, she's using her gifts of knowledge of scripture to look at what's going on and say, and then make a statement of, of proclamation about what is happening in Christ. And it's so important that it becomes part of scripture. Mary. And the same part of the beginning of Luke, we also have a, a woman named Anna, and a woman who is in the temple, fast, in fasting and prayer night and day, who is called a prophet. Um, and she also recognizes, with some other, with male characters as well, so you also have male uh, people in the story who are also recognized, but you have Anna and Mary. Of women who are recognizing what's happening in Christ and using their leadership gifts Let's go over to John, the Gospel of John. We talked about the woman at the well yesterday. And we talked about how it's, uh, uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well shows that he values speaking directly to women, even in a culture when that was seen as somewhat strange to do. Uh, but let's now look at it from a different perspective and look at the woman herself. If you know the story, you know that she gets into kind of a back and forth theological discussion with Jesus, right? So she's, she's not afraid to uh, have this conversation uh, with a, a religious teacher. So I think of the woman at the well as someone who's been thinking a lot about theology, thinking about, a lot about God and what she believes. Um, and when she becomes convinced by Jesus of who he is, she goes back to the city and tells, proclaims Christ to the entire city. And we see here in John 4, 39, that many Samaritans from that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. So the woman is using her gift of, of thinking about her faith in God, recognizing Christ, and then using her voice to proclaim that um, as what we might call an evangelist. And I mentioned this also yesterday, but let's go into a little bit more detail. Luke also lists women disciples in various places. So we know that Luke 
uh, we'll talk about the 12, but often what he does, he then mentions a group of women disciples. Uh, so in Luke 8, 3, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many others are mentioned. And then two places in chapter 23, uh, they're, they're sort of summarized as the women who had come with him from Galilee. In Luke 24, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women are uh, witnesses at the end there in chapter 24. And in all four Gospels, you have women who are at the foot of the cross. So if we, if we go from Luke out to all the Gospels, this is the list of women that you can kind of compile from those different testimonies. Uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, she sometimes calls the other Mary. <laughs> there are unfortunately lots of Marys. Make it very hard to track this down. Uh, Mary of Clopas, who is Jesus' aunt. Um, Mary, Jesus' mother. Uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome, and Joanna. So at least eight named women that seem to have been kind of a group of women that were Jesus' disciples alongside the group of men who were Jesus' disciples. Um, and then, if we go into Acts, you can see that these women continue so in Acts 1.14, the twelve are devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women. Uh, and because Luke has been telling us about these women, I think we can go back and say these are the same, this is the same group of women that have been coming with Jesus, traveling with Jesus all along. And then these are the same women then who are gathered in this room at Pentecost when the, when the Spirit comes upon the disciples. So the they there, if you trace that they back to figure out what is the antecedent for the day, you go back to where we just were and we see that it's the, the 12 plus the women plus the others that are unnamed or unspecified. So I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, when I thought about Pentecost, I think I thought about men being there. I'm not sure I thought about women, um, which is another example <coughs> of how we, um, we don't always see the women in the text. And that's what I'm trying to do today. It spend some time seeing the women in the text. Now we talked about it yesterday, but let's, it's so important, let's also go back to the empty tomb. Um, in all four Gospels, the witnesses to the empty tomb are women. And what God is doing there is entrusting perhaps the most important historical testimony in the church to the memory and the voices of women. And they're asked to proclaim it. Um, in the ancient world, the testimony of women was suspicious. It was not accepted. It was not always believed. Even in the pages of Luke, some of the male disciples, it says specifically, did not believe the women initially. That's very normal in their culture. Um, the women were not seen as reliable witnesses, say, for example, in a court of law sometimes. Um, and so I find this fascinating that knowing this cultural reality, that this important historical event of the empty tomb is entrusted to women. Now, of course, men are part of the, um, you know, the resurrection, the resurrected Christ, right? But the empty tomb itself, except in the Gospel of John, uh, Peter finally runs out to the tomb. Other than that, it's almost entirely women. Um, and so, I just, it, it, it's not something to, to rush past too quickly when we think about God entrusting the word to the voices of women.
Gospels. So we started getting into Acts already, so let's go a little deeper into the book of Acts. Um, let's look at a woman named Tabitha. You may have heard of her. She's also called Dorcas. She's a dis- called a disciple. She lives in Joppa, which is a port city on the coast of Israel. And, she, and she's involved in acts of charity that involve widows. But unfortunately, she falls ill and she dies. And two men are sent to bring Peter back on her behalf to see what can be done to help the, you know, that she has died. And Peter ultimately raises her. And so what people who have studied this text have pointed out is that sending two men to find Peter to bring him back suggests that Tabitha was extremely important in their community. And that what she was doing was some kind of ministry with widows. Um, Now, some of that, I admit, is speculation, right? We can't know that for sure. But there are some clues there. Um, The other thing that people have noticed is that when she is raised, she's, um, you know, uh, she's raised up by Peter, then, then Peter calls the saints and the widows so the whole community of Christ who's there in Java, up into her room and show them that she is alive. Uh, and so because they're invited into her home in this group way, and because the early church meets in homes, it's possible, and again, this is not, I would say this is not an absolute right, um, that, that she has been hosting a church in her home as well as is serving in this ministry. And that's a possibility. Uh, but if we go to another woman in Acts named Mary, who's the mother of John Mark. So you guys remember who John Mark is probably. He traveled around uh, with Paul and Barnabas and um, perhaps the author of the Gospel of Mark. Um, so this is his mother. Now, do you remember the story in Acts when Peter's in prison and he gets he has a jailbreak from prison with the angel? Remember the story? So this is the story. So after Peter gets out of prison, he's a little, he's a little loopy, not sure what's going on. (laughs) Um, That's the way to tell the story. And so Peter goes to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, um, where many had gathered and were praying. Now this is more, scholars who look at the phenomenon of house churches in the early church are more confident that what we have here is a a kind of house community of of early Christians um, hosted by by the mother of John. Now, hosting does not necessarily mean leadership, right? Um, but in this kind of society, it's a patronage society where when people hosted things in their home, they were considered the patron of that event. Um, it could point in that direction, and there are many people, many historians who argue that when women are hosting the, the church in their homes, that that implies some kind of leadership role. Now again, we can't know that for sure, but there, there's a lot of evidence of women hosting these events, or not events, but the community in their home. Uh, we can see this also with Lydia. So if we go to Philippi, in the book of Acts, if you remember the story, uh, Paul goes and he, uh, he likes, everywhere he goes, he tries to find the Jewish community first. And he ultimately, in Philippi, finds a praying community, not in synagogue exactly, but out by a river. And so this is a picture of the little river in Philippi where people think this may have, have occurred, if that's the right place. 
Um, and so Lydia, he meets Lydia there. Lydia is a businesswoman. She's a God-fearer, meaning she is a Gentile woman who has become a follower of the God of Israel. She is um, well off financially. She's a seller of purple goods, which was a luxury commodity in the ancient world. She's originally from Thyatira, which is a city a little ways away, but now is in Philippi. So she probably has kind of business interests around. Um, she seems to be in control of her own resources and household because when she becomes a follower of Christ, her whole household is baptized, um, which means she's likely a widow since no husband is mentioned. And while women in the ancient world um, were, and we're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but they were embedded in men for the most part socially, wealthy widows could be an exception to this. Uh, they were sort of able to, to operate a little bit more independently. It looks like Lydia may be uh, someone like that. And notice that she, <laughs> she has, I think Lydia has kind of a strong personality. Uh, um, because uh, Lydia urged us uh, say, you know, come stay in my home. And she prevailed upon us. <laughs> Those are kind of strong words, strong words. Um, and then, so the story goes on, and several things happen to Paul uh, and the others there. And then um, they end up in prison. <laughs> I'm going to skip that part. Uh, and then when they're leaving the prison, they go back to Lydia's home. Um, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. So again, that, that phrase of the brothers and sisters there, people who study house churches would argue that Lydia is now hosting a house church uh, in Philippi. Okay, so that is Lydia. Let's go to another woman in Acts, um, Priscilla or Prisca. So Luke calls this woman Priscilla, but that's actually a nickname. Her real name is Prisca. So Priscilla is like the diminutive form of her name. If you speak Spanish, you kind of know about this, like Carmen is the real name. Carmenita is the diminutive form. It's actually longer. In English, our diminutive forms are usually shorter. So people are like, that's weird. You know, Priscilla is the diminutive, but if you think Spanish, it makes a lot of sense. Or Lupe is Lupita or something like that. So Priscilla or Prisca. So I'll call her Prisca. Um, where Prisca is from originally, we don't know. But you can see her here that um, Luke tells us that her husband, Aquila, is a Jew from Pontus. Pontus is in kind of the northern part of Asia Minor, which is what it's today, Turkey, right out of the Black Sea. Um, so it looks like he's a diaspora Jew, meaning a Jew who is not living in Israel, but is living outside of Israel. Um, and how he comes to Rome, we don't know. But at this time, lots of people were flocking to Rome uh, to kind of find their fortunes in the imperial city, so it's possible that he came that way. It's possible that he got sold into slavery or got into slavery and became enslaved in some other way and ended up in Rome that way, it's possible. Um, if, Pris if Prisca is from Rome originally, uh, we don't know if she, where she entered the story and how she gets to Rome, maybe she's from Rome originally. Uh, but we know that they're tent makers, so they, that is their profession, and they work in this together. We don't know where they got their work skills, but we know that they are, by the time they get to Corinth, they're working together as tent makers. Uh, tent making was important in the economy and probably could provide a good living for them, but it was also seen as lower class kind of work, sort of dirty work, um, and people's hands got very gnarled. So we don't know if they were actually doing the tent making or if they 
were slightly above that, maybe from the sense socially in the sense that they had other people working for them. Maybe that's more the, <coughs> the situation. But if they had managed to create a comfortable life for themselves in Rome, this piece, the peace of their life was brutally disrupted when the Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from the city. So you can see that they had recently come to Corinth <coughs> from Italy um, because Claudius had ordered the Jews to leave Rome. So I think it's fair to say that for Prisca and her husband Aquila, this was a catastrophic event in their life. They went from being settled people to refugees, um, and they had to restart their business in Corinth. Um, they had to make their way 360 miles from Rome to Corinth, which took two weeks if you had good travel and probably longer if you didn't. So anyway, when you, get, when you find their story, when you pick up their story in Acts, you see that they've been in Corinth long enough that they've set up some kind of business and some kind of independent home, um, and they're able to extend hospitality to Paul, who, as it turns out, is also a tent maker, so that could be how they connect. Um, and they develop a, a strong, what appears to be a very strong relationship while they're in Corinth. Eventually, Paul decides to head east, and so Priscilla and Aquila uproot themselves again and go east with Paul to, uh, towards Syria. They sail from the port of Corinth, uh, the eastern port of Corinth, across to Ephesus in what is today Turkey. And then Luke doesn't tell us why, but when the three of them, Prisca, Aquila, and Paul, get to Ephesus, Paul decides to go on east, and Prisca and Aquila remain in Ephesus. And this is when another character comes into the story, and his name is Apollos. So what do we learn about Apollos? Apollos is a Jew from Alexandria who comes to Ephesus. Now, I don't know if you know much about Alexandria, but it was known in the ancient world as a place of great learning. And we can see that reflected in the way that Luke describes Apollos. So notice Luke calls Apollos an eloquent man. This word in Greek suggests that Apollos has mastered the Greek rhetorical education. It's a word that he would use for someone who has been educated in a Greek manner. But then notice also, Luke tells us that Apollos is highly knowledgeable in the Jewish scriptures. So he's kind of like Paul. He's not only knowledgeable in the Greek side, but also really knowledgeable in the Jewish side. And he has been instructed in the way of the Lord. This word instructed is a kind of, it's a word that signals some kind of formal instruction. So all three of these words are really kind of loaded in showing that Apollos has been, he's highly educated in the Greek and Jewish uh, traditions, and he knows a lot about the way of Christ. And not only that, but he speaks accurately and enthusiastically with a, you see that burning enthusiasm? Or it's actually more literally a boiling spirit. <laughs> um, proclaiming Jesus fearlessly in the Ephesian synagogue. So in just a few sentences, Luke doesn't take much time to do this, but he really paints Apollos as a pretty, um, well, not a slouch, for sure. <laughs> I, I would say, I don't know about you, but maybe a little bit of an intimidating sort of figure, right? Um, but the problem is that Apollos knows only the baptism of John, not the baptism of repentance, uh, uh, baptism of repentance alone, and not the baptism of Pentecost. 
just bold, articulate, highly educated, scripture-filled, and fiery apologists. And they pull him aside and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> you have about everything right. right? Um, what Luke tells us is that they explain the way of God to him more accurately. And this is also a word that has some kind of force to it. In English, explain doesn't really capture it. It describes the process of carefully laying out or teaching a particular philosophy or doctrine. Um, as the way that a, you know, a formal teacher would. Um, so, Prisca is being described as a careful, thoughtful teacher who lays out or explains the way with great precision to Apollos. And because Luke is so careful to establish Apollos' intellectual credentials, then I think it's reasonable to conclude that whoever teaches him also has an impressive knowledge of scripture and articulate speaking ability. And I would say also, it would take a lot of courage to offer instruction to a person like Apollos. Okay? Now, um, we may see a, this reflected a little bit in the way that Prisca is listed with her husband. So they actually appear six times in the New Testament, uh, to, I mean, listed together, two names listed together. Three are in Paul's letters and three are in Acts. And notice that four of those times, the phrase is Prisca and Aquila, not Aquila and Prisca. Now, it was very unusual in the ancient world to, when you listed a married couple, to list both female first, the woman first. And yet, four times, by two different writers, this happens. So this suggests something about Prisca. It could suggest that she has a higher social rank than her husband, just socially. That's a possibility. Um, but it more likely attests to her importance and her important role as a teacher in the early church and probably evangelist. So we're going to come back to Prisca later when we get to Paul's letters. But, so keep Prisca in your mind for now. All right. Um, the final piece that I want to look at in Acts is for our four female prophets. So in Acts 21, we see that there are four women, um, the daughters of Philip, who have the gift of prophecy. Uh, we don't find out much about them, but there they are. Okay, so that's Acts. Let's go then to the letters. Wait, whoops, what happened there? We're totally in the wrong place, so. <laughs> All right, go back to the trees. Letters. Okay, so um, let's start in Corinth. Um, we see in Corinth that women are praying and prophesying in the assembly. Now, this is a passage that may be familiar to you. It's the passage about head coverings and whether women should wear head coverings or not. And this gets discussed a lot, but what is often, it's not always appreciated is that the whole reason they're having this discussion is that women are praying and prophesying in the assembly in court. So I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, we'll talk about the other passage in Corinthians next time. But for this time, for now, let's just remember that that is happening. Um, let's go then to Philippi. So in Philippi, you have two women, do you look at who um, are being urged by Paul to be in the same mind in the Lord because it appears that their disagreement with each other is affecting the whole community. 
They are called co-workers. So do you see that down towards the bottom there? Right here. By Paul. This term occurs 13 times in the New Testament, 12 times are in Paul's letters, and it seems to have almost a technical meaning in Paul's letters. It's not used of Paul by believers in general, but rather it describes people who are involved with him in evangelistic and missionary work of some sort. So a co-worker for Paul shares the divine commission, works in a, in a collegial manner in congregational activity, and engages in missionary proclamation. As one historian puts it, in short, this term is reserved for various early Christian leaders. And here we have two women, Yodia and Sintike, being called co-workers. Um, there are also two other clues in this text that these women are significant in the Philippian community. One is that Paul calls them out by name. A personal appeal to a particular person is rare in Paul's letters that are written to whole communities. Like finally would be an exception, right? But the, the, to call people out by name. And so it's reasonable to conclude that these people that are being named are important and have an effect on the community in Philippi. In this case, we, they're having a negative effect. But a leader who is going the wrong direction can have a negative effect. And that seems to be maybe what's happening here. Um, and also, at the beginning of Philippians, Paul writes this. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. So he mentions bishops and deacons. Now, some historians would say that then because he names Yodan and Sintiki, that they are either bishops or deacons. That one is a little more speculative. But the idea that they call that he called them out by name is far less speculative, right? Um, that, that they are being called out by name and that their disagreement is affecting the whole church, that suggests a leadership role, along with the word co-workers. So, women in Philippi. Let's go to Laodicea. Laodicea, Philippi, as we know, is on the coast, um, kind of north of Athens. Um, if we go to Laodicea, we're going to cross uh, to what is today Turkey. Laodicea is near Colossae, if you're more familiar with Colossae. Um, and notice there you have greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So again, we have a woman serving as a patron of a church, of a house church. So we're seeing, now we're starting to see a pattern. But this is kind of all over the New Testament. And now let's go to Rome. At the end of the book of Romans, in chapter 16, there is a long section where Paul greets a bunch of people. I don't know if you're familiar with this. For my mind, before I started really paying attention to these things, I would get to a passage like that and my eyes would kind of glaze over because it's like, okay, it's a bunch of names of people I don't know. Um, but actually, if you pay a lot of attention, I can learn a lot about what's going on in the church in Rome. It's like a wealth of information there. Um, and it's interesting that um, that 10 of the 17 people that are greeted at the end of this letter by Paul are women, and seven of these women he names as ministry partners. He also names five men as ministry partners. So seven women and five men. That looks to me like a church that's living out Galatians 3.20. Um, four of these, he just simply says, 
our co-workers. So read me, or, or, or not necessarily co-workers, but workers in the gospel, it's that same word that we just talked about with, um, you know, with uh, you and Anson Kate. So these are Mary, who has worked very hard in my Trophina and Trophosa, and Persis, all of them. But there are three of the seven, so these are four of the seven. The other three of the seven really do stand out because Paul gives us a little bit more information about what's going on in them. So that's where we're going to go next. Phoebe. So he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, deacon of the church at Pancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many, including, and of myself as well. So Phoebe is a Gentile woman from Cancrea. You can see the picture there. Cancrea is the port city of Corinth. Paul calls her a sister, which means that he values her as a kind of part of his spiritual family. And notice that he uses the word commend. This is a word that means to present, introduce, or recommend someone to someone else. So um, if you look at how this word is used in letters in the ancient world, you'll find that it often describes the person who is bringing the letter. So this is at the end of the book of, of the letter of Romans. So many historians will read this and say, this looks like Phoebe is the one that's coming from Corinth to Rome, carrying Paul's letter. And in that day, sometimes people who carried letters were just delivered. But other times, when they're, when they're named like this and commended like this, they're actually interpreting the letter. They're reading the letter to the community and, and adding to it or using it in some way, you know, so that they know the letter writer. So keep that in mind. Also notice that she's described as a deacon. So this is a word that um, can mean emissary, and, and I think she is serving as an emissary. But it's the deacon of the church of Cancrea, which suggests that she holds a leadership position in the church of Cancrea. So the idea is that she's representing Paul and her church in, as, as this letter comes to Rome. Notice that Paul says to help her in what she asks for. So provide her with whatever thing she may need from you. Or another way to translate this would be provide her or, I mean, stand alongside her in whatever thing she may need from you. So this goes along with the idea that she's the emissary and calling and bringing the letter. The idea is that Paul is sending, or Paul is partnering with Phoebe, and she's taking the letter to Rome, and Paul has some practical thing in mind that he wants to get done, and he's telling the Roman, Phoebe knows about this, listen to what she says and do it. And if we wonder, what is that thing? If you go back to chapter 15, Paul has just said, I want to go to Spain, and I want to preach the gospel in Spain. This is going to be a big undertaking. So it is likely, although not certain, that Phoebe is helping Paul launch his mission to Spain. She's coming to Rome, and she's using her leadership skills to set that up and get that going. And Paul is saying, is writing a letter for many reasons, but one of them is to say, I really want you to help Phoebe in this effort, because he wants Rome to help him launch this thing. Okay, one last thing about Phoebe is that she is referred to 
as um, what is often, has been translated benefactor, or you can see below, it's also been translated helper, great help, or helpful. Um, benefactor is better than helper, because this word was a pretty strong word in the ancient world. Prostatis. Um, it means leader, manager, or patron. Um, if you look, it's the female, it's the feminine version of the word. If you look at the, the masculine version of the word, you can see um, in just kind of a standard dictionary, Greek dictionary, that it's one who stands before the front, the front rank man, the ruler, the president or presiding officer, one who stands before and protects the guardian, champion, or patron. That's how Paul was describing Phoebe. Um, if you look at the verbal form of this word in the New Testament, because we don't have the noun in the New Testament, you can see how Paul uses it. Um, in Romans, it's one of the gifts that we looked at yesterday, to be a leader. You see that there. In 1 Timothy, it distinguishes elders who rule or manage from just older people in the community. And Phoebe is being called the noun version of the same verb. And then in, um, oh, I zoomed in too far, so what is it? 1 Thessalonians 5.12, he's appealing to the, the people there to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. And Phoebe is, is being described with this word. So Phoebe, I think it's clear, is a woman of strength and power who is using her gifts of leadership and service to the kingdom, very likely to help Paul set up his mission to Spain. Okay, so that's Phoebe. Let's go back to quickly to Prisca, and then we're going to look at Junia, and then we'll conclude and have time for questions. So we already looked at uh, Prisca's story, so I don't want to spend a lot of time, but let's revisit here. By now, Prisca and her husband have returned to Rome, and Paul describes them this way. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me, that's that co-worker word, in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. I think it's clear that Prisca and her husband Aquila were important leaders in the early church. Um, so to the extent that all the churches of the Gentiles owe them things. And finally, let's look at Junia. <coughs> Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Junia the female apostle. How many of you have heard of Junia? Okay, I'd say that's about 15 to 20%. So in the pages of Romans, we have a female apostle, and a lot of us have never heard of her. This is what I mean when I say that these women have been lost to us. There is a very interesting story about how Junia got lost to us that I had hoped to tell today but I think I'm not, because I want to have time for questions. But let me just say, it has to do with grammar and accenting. And um, the, de the desire of some biblical scholars to turn Junia into a man. So for 71 years in the Greek 
text, Junia was accented, her name was accented in such a way that she appeared to be a man. She was only, only restored to her femaleness <laughs> in 1998. Um, one scholar has called this sex change by translation. <laughs> um, but I think it is now clear, and if you have any doubt on this, I recommend a whole book on the subject um, by a, a man by the last name of PPP, and I can tell you about that. Um, I think it is now absolutely clear that Jania is a female. Um, she is prominent among the apostles. Some people also will say uh, that means a prominent to the apostles. But really that's stretching the language quite a bit to, to read it that way. And when you look back at how ancient readers who spoke ancient Greek read the passage, they understood it that Junia was A, a woman, and B, she was prominent among the apostles. Uh, so all, with all of that in mind, I think it, we can be great confidence to say that we have, in Romans 16, 7, an example of a female apostle. So, just to summarize, public prayer, prophecy, co-struggle in the gospel, co-prisoners, risking their necks, co-working evangelism, church patronage, deacon leader, apostle. Um, I love this passage from Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, who was writing several hundred years after the New Testament, who said, for the women of those days were more spirited than lions, sharing with the apostles their labors for the gospel's sake. In this way, they would travel in with them and also performed all other ministries. I like the phrase more spirited than lions. I think it really captures what we're seeing in these texts. All right, so this is the last slide. I don't have questions. Well, I went a little longer than I intended. On the left, you see the list of ministry gifts that we looked at yesterday from the Spirit. On the right, you see the women doing these things. This is just the New Testament. I did not make the deal have had that. Um, and it's, I think that they line up pretty well. They don't line up perfectly, but I wouldn't expect that. I don't think that the lists are meant to be prescriptive or that they would always line up well. Um, but I, I would say if there were a theological principle of male leadership, it would make sense in Scripture that these women would be criticized for stepping out of their divinely ordained roles to lead God's people, but they are not criticized. In fact, they are praised. And why? Because these women are not aberrations. They are trees growing naturally in the forest that we walked through together yesterday. Some of might still object and say, wait, weren't most of the leaders in Israel and in the church men? That's true. And that's because there is another competing landscape in this story. It's a landscape of culture, not of theology. It's a landscape of the ancient world, we're going to talk about tomorrow, in which men were in charge. But that is very different than saying that there is a theological principle of male leadership in Scripture. There is a reflection of a cultural principle. And that's what we're going to look at more tomorrow when we go to some of the texts in Paul, um, or the famous texts that we'll be looking at tomorrow. Uh, okay, so I'll end there because, oh boy, I want
want to do more time for questions. But at least we have five minutes for questions and discussion. Um, so, what do you want to talk about? It's called Junia, and it's by Elgin Epp, EPP. Yeah, it's a little technical, there's a lot of Greek and stuff in it, but I think if, you, if you're game for waiting through it, it's still, it's still a good read, yeah. Would you say Christ in church, you know, the model of marriage, and also Christ in the church, that seems like to, um, you could call it roles within a, like a household, that also mirror Jesus, you know, so we're supposed to submit ourselves to to God by loving our wives, and there's like a certain, you know, and there's subjection that happens there too, but, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that that's sort of like a, a hierarchy of kind? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. The question is that, isn't there a kind of hierarchy in a kind of submission, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you're talking about this, the marriage passages, yeah. like in Ephesians and Colossians. Um, so in Ephesians, it actually says submit yourselves one to another, right? So uh, I think what Paul is doing in that passage is that he's saying in Christ, we have a model for what power looks like. What does Christ do with his power? He serves. That is the call to men and women, of course, because we are not classes of human beings, we are human so Christ is the model for men and women, mutual submission in marriage, is what, is what I remember that passage said. Now, we're going to look at it more next time, but it's being lived out in a culture that doesn't have that same priority, right? So how do you, I mean, think about slavery, for example, which is also in that passage. The ideal is that we see each other as fully human. And if we see each other as fully human, we are not going to enslave each other. Right? That's just the way it is. The only way you can enslave someone is to see them as less than human. Right? But what if you're living in an oppressive regime, which they were in Rome, in which slavery is the foundation of the society, they have no power to change that system. Right? Now, I would argue that's different than the United States, where it was a democracy, and we did have the power to change that system. Right? So I'm talking about Rome. Right? They had no power to change that system. They, were, they, they couldn't get elected into office. You know, nothing was going to change. So Paul is trying to help them say, how do you have this great ideal of full humanity, but how do you live that out in a world that does not share that ideal? And in fact, puts structures upon us that we, that we have to live out, right? Um, and so, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's what we're going to look at tomorrow. Yes? Uh, okay. uh, some scholars see a connection Joanna and Junia. True. Uh, that uh, since um, uh, Junia uh, was an apostle, and one of the requirements of an apostle was to witness the resurrection, uh, it's been suggested that um, uh, Joanna is her Hebrew name, and Junia is the Roman name. Since she's writing to Rome, you would use that. Uh, in your research, uh, is this true? Okay, so the question is about, is it possible that Junia and Joanna are the same person? So, you know, we have like Saul and Paul, his Jewish name, his Roman name, uh, Silas, Silvanus, Jewish name. So the, the suggestion has been made by Richard Bauckham, and not too long ago, I think it was like 10 years ago or 12 years ago, he wrote this book, that Junia and Joanna are the same person. I read it, and I was like, whoa, that kind of blew my mind, 
he has a really good argument if you're interested in this. Uh, he's really the one who has, it's, it's really his thing. He, he made this argument. I mean, it does make a lot of sense, right? Because an apostle is someone who has seen the Lord. Junia, the risen Lord. Junia is someone that Paul says was is Jewish and his relative and was in Christ before he was. Which means that she became a follower of Christ very early in the process. So if you merge Joanna and Junia, then now you see that the, the, the same person was was one of those women that traveled around with Jesus and then went out to proclaim the message from there. It's a fascinating argument. Um, I think there's a lot to uh, recommend that argument. I, I think the jury is still out on whether other scholars will, you know, scholarship is a dialogue, right? So Richard Bauckham has thrown out this for, for dialogue. He made a really good case for it, but we'll see if that really takes hold. But yeah, that's if I had more time with Jimmy, I would have gone into that. It's fascinating. So thank you for bringing that. How do you spell that like Bachman? Bachman, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-L-I. Yeah. And then uh, let's take one quick question in the back. Yeah. Yes. Uh, going back to yesterday, Genesis after Adam and Eve that seems to be when God put man over woman. I mean, that seems where the hierarchy was established. Is that only in the marriage setting? Or is that when all this started? Yeah, so the question is about uh, he will rule over you from Genesis 3. So did God establish hierarchy? My personal opinion is no. What God is doing there is describing the effects of sin. Right? Just like, so just like weeds and pain, child, pain and childbearing, and disruption in the mutuality of men and women, to where now we have hierarchy. The what I am suggesting is there is no theological principle of hierarchy in the Bible. I'm sorry, you said describing what? Describing the effects of sin. Okay. Of, or the disruption that we see in the garden. That those mutual relationships with the earth, with each other, that are so mutual and close in the garden are disrupted by, by human sin. And so what is being restored in Christ is that picture of mutuality, and that's what we see in Galatians 3.28, and that's what we see in Acts, and that's what we see in the gifts passages, and that's what we see when these women live out their gifts in the early church, even in the midst of a culture that is very, very different. So I want to honor the time. So I will, I will end there. Uh, tomorrow we're going to look at what I'm calling the mushrooms. And I don't mean poison, but what I mean is you have to Yeah, I'm going to be careful before you just pick one and eat it.